Hi, this is Christine Flowers. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, Thinking, Complaining, and Dreaming Out Loud. There's going to be a little bit of an emphasis on the complaining part tonight. Kvetching. That's my Yiddish. I know a little bit of Yiddish. I know Meshuga or Mishigas. I know, I know um, Kvetching. I know Oi Gewalt. I know Tukas. I know a couple of things. Tonight, I want to focus on complaining. And actually, I think the, the true focus of the podcast will be on complaining about how the media, activists, uh, some attorneys, some members of my own profession, and members of the general public react when we're dealing with so-called children and crime. And there are two things that I really want to focus on tonight. The first one being the, what can only be called tragic case of Makia Bryant. Now, Makia, as many people know by this point, was killed in Columbus, Ohio, about 30 minutes before the George Floyd verdict was handed down a few thousand miles away in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Makia was staying at her foster mother's home, apparently had gotten into an altercation with two other girls, called the police. And when the police arrived, she was lunging at an unarmed, another, uh, another girl who had nothing, no weapon, and was in close proximity of this girl, and in fact may have already stabbed her once and was about to stab her again. The police officer shot. Makia was taken to a hospital and she died at the hospital from her wounds. It is tragic because a life was lost. By the same token, it is commendable, and, and that's, a, um, and that's a, a, a pale version of the the assessment that, I, that I've made about this police officer, but at the very least, it's commendable that he was able to save the life of the young woman who was being lunged at by Makia Bryant with the knife and also to defuse the situation so that no one else was harmed. Tragically, Makia Bryant died, but Makia Bryant was the aggressor. Unfortunately, there is no such thing as an aggressor to some people who have a narrative that they want to advance and an ax that they want to grind. And this was a a case foretold. You knew the moment that you heard the circumstances, police shooting black female child, 16 year old, that an entire narrative would be spun, yet again, another chapter in the book about police brutality. Unfortunately, just as the video of George Floyd having the life squeezed out of him by Derek Chauvin was instrumental, was key in his conviction and in changing or forming and driving public opinion, so too are the various different video angles that you see involving and about the incident involving Makia Bryant and that knife and the police officer. Charles Ramsey, 
former police commissioner of Philadelphia. I spoke about him in uh, an earlier episode of the podcast. I am a great admirer of Charles Ramsey. I think he's incredibly fair and he's had decades of experience both in Philadelphia and in Washington, D.C. He knows what police officers are up against. He knows what a good shoot is and a bad shoot. And in this situation, he told CNN that he believes that the police officer really had no other choice than to neutralize this young woman who was lunging at an unarmed girl. And if you see the video, Makia Bryant is a large girl or was a large girl. She was hefty and therefore she had a lot of strength and there was the probability that she could do a great deal of damage with that knife. And she was feral in those moments. If you look at her on the video, she was out of control. And so I'm not the only person who believes that the police officer was absolutely justified in doing what he did. Sadly, there are people, including some very high profile people with millions and millions of followers on social media, people like LeBron James, King LeBron, who have decided to turn this poor police officer into um, the new Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin 2.0. And they're doing it because they want to continue and advance that narrative that sadly was resolved with the conviction of Derek Chauvin. Sadly, I say not because of the conviction, but because all of a sudden now the social justice activists, the industrial grievance claimers no longer have or, or didn't have that most immediate, that most compelling story to keep complaining about because they got what they wanted. They got three guilty verdicts on the three charges that were filed against and pending against Derek Chauvin. And this again is not a commentary on the legitimacy or the, um, you know, the, whether I believe that the, the Chauvin verdict was a correct verdict. I happen to believe substantively, I think there was enough evidence to convict him on all three charges. However, I think that the verdicts will always be tainted by the fact that they were driven in, in some way, shape, or form by public opinion, by the fear of mob violence on the part of that lay jury, and by a, an atmosphere, a heated atmosphere of vengeance and wanting to get some scalps that we've been living through for the past year. And people will define that as the BLM moment, the social justice movement, our search for justice, and that's fine. You can name it whatever you want. But when you boil it down and distill it to its most fundamental uh, essence, you have a situation where you have one group of people who have absolutely no tolerance for anything approaching empathy, compassion, understanding for what police officers have to go through in their daily lives. And so... You know, Derek Chauvin off the table, you now have, oh, goody, there's a new situation that can be exploited and it will be exploited. Young girl, young black girl, police officer, she's dead, there's video, and I, you, you, you just know that this is going to be spun into Derek Chauvin, George Floyd 2.0, and we're going to have another year cycle worth of police brutality 101 the 
problem, one of the problems, one of the reasons I'm kvetching over here, complaining, is that people are trying to turn Nakia Bryant into a victim. They're trying to turn her into a child, a black child, who was attacked, assaulted by a white police officer. And that's not what happened. Nakia Bryant was the aggressor. And yes, she was 16 years old. So in legal terms, she is a child. She's a minor. But 16-year-olds in this society can do a lot of things. They can have abortions without seeking the consent of their parents in many states. They can drive, obviously. They can get married with, in some cases, not even needing the consent of a guardian or a parent. Although in most states they do, but there are some southern states, I believe, where you can actually contract marriage even at the age of 16 or 17. There are things that 16-year-olds can do that are adult activities. And so this this knee-jerk reaction to treat 16-year-old criminals or 16-year-old offenders as children is, is a bit pretextual and suspect. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, there was a very important Supreme Court case that came down today as well. And that ties in very nicely to what I'm talking about right now. But on a personal note, one of the reasons that I was really angry about the victimization or the infantilization, let's say, of Makia Bryant and turning her into some kind of victim and, and a child is the fact that, yeah, she was in foster care. So what? My father was in foster care. Many people I know that I've grown up with had extremely difficult childhoods. My father had a very difficult childhood. As I said, he was in foster care. He bounced around. He didn't have the guidance of a father. His mother was an alcoholic. They, you know, literally, they had serious issues growing up. And my father became a legendary Philadelphia attorney. My father was a man who went down south in 1967 to Mississippi and he registered black voters and had a a near miss with the KKK. My father was a man whose name is engraved in in a book in the city of Philadelphia, the Philadelphia lawyer, the city that gave us Andrew Hamilton, the, the, the image of the great lawyer, the great litigator, um, the great advocate for justice and civil rights. My father's name was one of the first inaugural names chosen to be a legend of the Philadelphia Bar. My father died at the age of 43 of, of uh, terminal lung cancer, and I will devote another podcast entirely and solely to him. But I mention him as a counterpoint to Makia Bryant. There are people out there saying, Makia, 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 she was a foster child. Oh, what a horrible situation. How sad, how, how tragic, you know, the life that she had to live. I'm tired of it. My father walked through the most profound depths of the valley and clawed his way back up to the summit. And true, not everybody has that ability and that resilience. But frankly, the fact that you're a foster child is never and should never be an excuse 
for criminality. And unfortunately, all too often, it is used as an excuse. And all too often, it's used by communities of color. This is what is incredibly upsetting because Makia Bryant had a chance to live a good life. It is not society that failed Makia Bryant. It's her family, her mother who's out there now talking about what a beautiful child she was. Well, if she was a beautiful child, why wasn't Makia with her mother? Why was Makia in a foster home? Why was she in foster care? This beautiful child (laughs) was able to pick up a knife and threaten and, and try and stab and in fact, I believe did stab another human being. This is why I get very angry when I hear people like LeBron James, like Cory Booker, like Vice President Kamala Harris's niece, Maya, I believe her name is Maya um, Harris, making excuses for criminal activity. You wonder also if they would be making the same excuse if Makia Bryant were a white boy. Not a black girl, but a white boy. You, you, you wonder, you ask yourself that question. Because in today's society, in today's environment, race has become the most weighty issue. It colors, it, it inserts itself, it infects, in fact, with its toxicity every single issue that we discuss. And so, yes, one of the reasons I believe that Makia Bryan is being put up there as some kind of angelic victim is the fact that she is black and the fact that she is a ready symbol, a ready-made symbol for the narrative that is, is now a, is empty because George Floyd's case was resolved. And we've already heard about Breonna Taylor and we've, we've talked about Ahmaud Arbery who, by the way, out of all of these situations, is the one that I think is truly an example of a race killing. That young man was doing absolutely nothing wrong. He was jogging around a neighborhood and he was gunned down in cold blood by two white men who took themselves for vigilante police officers. So Ahmaud Arbery is is very different from George Floyd from, uh, and Breonna Taylor obviously was innocent because she was sleeping. But this whole narrative here of um, you know, the, the police versus the black community is just so pretextual. And as I said, it, it now with that vacuum of the verdict of uh, George Floyd coming down and the fact that now um, people can't riot because they got the verdict that they wanted, thank God, they have to find something else. And they have found it and they have manipulated it and they have turned it into something that it is not. Nakia Bryant was a young woman, 16 years old, troubled, in foster care, took a knife and tried to kill someone. And someone shot her to protect everyone else around Nakia Bryant. End of story, congratulations to that police officer. He saved lives. He was heroic. A couple minutes ago, I talked about a Supreme Court decision that came down today that has, uh, there's a, there's a strange uh, parallel with the Makia Bryant story. You know, we talk about, as I said before, 
<coughs> excuse me, the idea that society fails our children when they become criminals, but it's actually the other way around. Children fail society when they become criminals. And I understand the science about the uh, juvenile mind and it's not fully formed and you can't have, uh, you, you can't formulate intent and what have you, but there are cases that you must absolutely remove from that whole juvenile context, remove from that more forgiving kind of, well, they're kids and kids will be kids and let's give them an opportunity to become rehabilitated. You must take some of the most egregious cases and remove them from that empathetic construct. One type of case is when you have a juvenile who has killed in cold blood someone else. And that was the case that was before the high court today. It was actually argued months ago. And today the decision came down. It was a decision uh, entitled Jones versus Mississippi. And it was a, <coughs> excuse me, a majority decision written by um, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. You'll have to excuse me. It's the allergy season. So my first few podcasts sound like, I sound like Charlie Weaver. (laughs) But (coughs) the the decision in Jones, Jones versus Mississippi basically hewed back to the established law regarding life without parole for juveniles. It used to be that if a crime was heinous enough, you could impose life without parole, simply making a determination of the, the circumstances before you as a judge, meaning the severity of the crime, if there were any mitigating circumstances, um, Obviously, if it's a uh, murder, uh, <laughs> that, in, that in and of itself is an aggravating circumstance. But, um, and then <clears throat> some of the um, jurisprudence developed, there was a sort of a, a, an arc that started to form whereby some of the more liberally minded justices started adding layers to that determination and basically saying, well, (coughs) there should be, when you're determining whether to um, sentence someone to life without parole, sentence a juvenile to life without parole, you should determine separately whether that individual, that defendant is permanently incorrigible incorrigible that the, the legal the legal terminology basically meaning is there absolutely no hope of rehabilitation and some of the precedents of the supreme court started to incorporate that idea well today in <coughs> jones versus mississippi in the majority decision penned by justice kavanaugh take that me too movement it is justice kavanaugh the decision was handed down and it basically uh, moved us away from that whole idea that, well, 
you know, maybe there's hope for rehabilitation and, and, you know, you, you, uh, you, 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 uh, you know, you have to make that separate finding of incorrigibility and Justice Kavanaugh said, no, you don't, you don't have to make a separate finding that this grandson who stabbed his grandfather and murdered his grandfather, that was the defendant in the criminal case in Jones versus Mississippi and, um, the um, the uh, the plaintiff before the high court or the petitioner before the high court, you don't have to make a determination that that grandson who murdered his grandfather is permanently incorrigible to impose a life sentence without parole. Now, years ago, and I believe Justice Kennedy, I, I think this is the irony, I believe, Justice Kennedy, if I recall, wrote the opinion that eliminated the death penalty for juveniles. And, and I think most people agree with that, that, um, frankly, I don't, I happen to believe that, that juveniles who are capable of committing heinous murders are, you know, should, should be considered adults for purposes of sentencing. And since I do support the death penalty, I wouldn't make a distinction between a hardened juvenile who was able to, as in this particular case, murder his grandfather uh, because his grandfather didn't like the murderer's girlfriend, um, I would I, I would have no problem with the imposition of the death sentence. But that's no longer on the table. And the, the reason that I say irony here is that if I am correct, I'm going to have to go back and check this, but I, I do think it was Justice Kennedy uh, because he was, a, he was a major swing vote back in the 80s and the 90s. I think that if, if it was indeed Justice Kennedy who wrote the decision getting rid of the death penalty for juveniles, who replaced Justice Kennedy? Justice Kavanaugh. That's right. So, and, and that has liberals just going bonkers because they thought that Justice Kennedy was, was sort of one of theirs and he was kind of, you know, evolving to be a liberal because he was, you know, he was appointed... Uh, by, uh, um, oh my goodness, Ronald Reagan. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, excuse me, George Bush. And uh, I'm like rambling tonight because I, I, I took a, I took a, a Sudafed for my, uh, my um, allergies. But in any event, <laughs> you're not listening to me for the Supreme Court uh, review, I can tell. In any event, today, the Supreme Court came down with a very important decision that recognized that juveniles do not deserve a special cushion of treatment if they have committed a crime that is heinous enough to warrant a life sentence and would have been heinous enough to warrant capital punishment, then there is no reason to make a separate finding of permanent incorrigibility. Essentially, basically what this means is no parole. If you're in a state that uh, basically doesn't have commutations by the governor, uh, you are going to live the rest of your life behind bars. And, and maybe that's an important lesson and an important message that should be sent to those 16-year-old children who commit these heinous crimes. Don't commit the crime. I don't have that well of empathy in me that says, oh, well, you know, a 15-year-old is not 
a 59 year old and they change and they get religion and they get Jesus and all of this and fine. I'm happy for them. Let them become better people behind bars and let them stay behind bars. Nothing's stopping them from being good people, good human beings. So my major point here is that society has for a very long time and justifiably so treated children children differently than we treat adults. It's necessary. The juvenile mind, the young mind, is not the same as the adult mind. But there are levels of juvenile status. I mean, an eight-year-old is different from a 12-year-old is different from a 14-year-old is different from a 16-year-old holding a knife. My point being, we have to stop using kids to advance these narratives and these agendas and to hide these agendas behind children. In the case of Makia Bryant, we have a group of people who want to continue, who want to continue the crusade against police officers, white police officers in particular, and they will use her because she is convenient. You know, rest in peace, Makia Bryant. She should not be used as an easy cover for BLM, for social justice activists, people who want to divide us on the color line. And to those who are upset about the fact that you no longer have to make a separate finding of permanent incorrigibility for juvenile offenders, I don't think they care about juveniles as much as they want to get rid of life sentences. They were successful in getting rid of the death penalty for juveniles because that was kind of the low-hanging fruit. They're still fighting to get rid of the death penalty. And, you know, that's, that's a shame. They were successful in uh, getting the death penalty off of the books about, what, 30-some, 40-some years ago. It was before I was even in law school. Uh, and then the Supreme Court came back and uh, reversed itself and held that, no, in fact, the death penalty did not violate the Eighth Amendment uh, prohibiting uh, cruel and unusual punishment. So you know, there went that. Death penalty is still, is still on the books and still valid in certain states, including the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, even though I think the last person that was put to death was Gary Heidnick. That was decades ago, and that's because Gary Heidnick wanted to die. Uh, so while it is on the books, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, rarely imposed in Pennsylvania. Um, with more frequency, it, it is imposed in some of the other states, including Texas, I think. Um, <coughs> but this, this, this whole idea of being upset about life without parole for juveniles and not having that, that special, that, that, uh, that second level of review and that special cushion for juvenile offenders is really sort of the, the, the camel's nose under the tent for the social justice types like Larry Krasner who don't even believe that people should be sent to jail to begin with. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of victims across the country who are begging for some kind of reform of our laws that will stop this, 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 this sense, this idea that offenders are the ones that we should worry about and take care of, including and especially juvenile offenders. 
You're just as dead if you're stabbed through the heart by a 16-year-old as if you're stabbed through the heart by a 59-year-old. Well, I went a little longer tonight than I anticipated, but that's because I feel really passionately about these issues. I am so glad that you spent some time with me. I, uh, I hope that, uh, I hope that I, I, I made you think. I hope that my, uh, my thinking out loud and my kvetching made you think. And if it got you angry, good. If it got you maybe questioning your own views, great. If you already agree with me, that's fine too. The most important thing is that you listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. Give me feedback. I'll listen to you as well. This is Christine Flowers, and this was my podcast. Thinking, complaining, and dreaming out loud. Until the next time, take care.